This is Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. Fiction and nonfiction, graphic novels and more, we're here to help you find something great to read. Welcome back to Books and Nachos, the Venganza Media Podcast about all things in print. It's your host, Stuart, in L.A. I'm still talking about Bond. We have reached book number three in our series of 007 Literary Adventures, Moonraker. And I want to be clear, I'm talking about the 1955 Ian Fleming Moonraker, not the 1979 movie tie-in. It was released as James Bond's Moonraker. We're not ever covering that one. We're sticking strictly with Fleming. We're not covering any additional author's take on Bond. Happy to report that 007 is trading out the tarot deck for a regular set of playing cards, and we're getting a story that at least puts him closer to where he was in Casino Royale, a vastly better first novel to what I would characterize as the misstep of Live and Let Die. M has paid for Bond's skin graft, and he no longer has spies scrawled into his hand that was done to him in Casino Royale, and he is ready to go work for him at a gentleman's club. He is being sent to play bridge and to assess the character of its most wealthy and lucky bridge player, Hugo Drax. Bond doesn't know much about the guy other than what he's read in the papers, but it's been a really celebrated rags-to-riches story that Hugo had emerged from World War II an amnesiac who, within a matter of years, had discovered a very special type of metal that allowed him to rocket to the forefront of the aerospace industry, and pun intended. He builds rockets now. His metal is actually able to withstand intense heats more than the average, and they go further. And so he really is being seen as a protector for London, and the Queen has given him unlimited access to build Moonraker, a rocket with the longest range of targeting that's ever been done before. He's going to do a test on Friday, but first he's going to unwind and continue his winning streak at the Gentleman's Club on a Monday. M, maybe it's just because he's been a part of the spy business so long, thinks there's more than meets the eye here with this guy, and he doesn't see how he's been able to have the kind of running cards that he has, that he must be a card cheat. And what does that say about the man if he has been so wealthy and has such unlimited success and yet still feels the need to cheat at a gentleman's club bridge game? He's more concerned about a deep character flaw, and since this guy is building our missiles, I think it's best to know who he really is. So, for the first third of the novel, Bond just plays him in cards. We're back in a card game again, a game of chance. I really love this setup. I really like the idea of having this oversized, altruistic personality who has this glaring character flaw, and that this is the way that Bond is going to catch him and discover ultimately that his plans for Moonraker aren't so benevolent. I mean, we could all imagine that, right? Someone named Hugo Drax, who's building a missile that's launching on Friday, is not up to good. Well, I like that we're finding it out here at the card table first. I wish I knew more about Bridge. I gotta say, it's a little hard to find, and it's not as easy to learn as Baccarat, but I like the way Fleming keeps escalating the tension, that this time Bond turns to drugs. Not only is he faking being drunk, but he has this powder that he takes called Bezendrine that gives him sort of a liquid courage that he actually starts to behave irrationally. It makes him more bold than he really is. And this guy's arrogant, so that's really saying something. Makes him bold enough to take on a super rich person 
like Hugo Drax. And I had to laugh that Bond comes to the opinion very quickly that Drax is no good, not because he's a cheat. He does figure that out pretty quickly. But more to the point, he has bad hygiene. He doesn't like that he's so sweaty and vulgar and kind of an overweight man. You know, of course, that prim, prickly Bond, would this would be his issues. It's all about being uncouth. So he takes his powder and goes one-on-one, and the game goes crazy out of control. I mean, at the end of the day, Bond is borrowing money from M, but it's at a rate that's a hundred times his annual salary. He'd never be able to pay it back. It's mentioned that Bond only has eight more years as a double-O agent before he's going to be forced to retire. He will never be able to pay this back if he screws up. But of course, he's James Bond, so he's not going to, and the drugs actually help him create the impression that he can match Drax's irrational, sweaty nature, and that every time the guy doubles the bet or triples the bet, Bond doesn't blink. He's like, sure, let's go for it. And that sort of ends up unnerving Drax. And he makes mistakes, he loses the hand. And with some grumbling, makes the promise that he's going to write the check for Bond, give it to him by the weekend. Of course, he's launching a rocket on Friday and then promptly leaving the country. I think that it's easy to say the check is in the mail when you're planning to blow up London. This is going to be the plot that we learn about Hugo Drax. He is actually not a World War II hero, but a Nazi who has gone undercover and duped an entire populace. His factory is now being run by German scientists and ex-Nazis, a team called werewolves. They're not actually werewolves, that's just the name of the group. And they want Hitler payback. They want to show that London cannot be rebuilt after World War II and that they are going to win one for the fatherland. But at the same time that Drax and Bond are playing bridge, there's a crack in his security. Uh, One of the German scientists takes a gun and shoots a British inspector, allegedly because they're both in love with the same woman, Drax's secretary, Gayla Brand. But truthfully, this investigator was starting to find out about the plot, starting to find out about their submarine getaway after they launched the rocket on Friday and how they're recalibrating it to make it hit London rather than fall into the open water and how it actually will be armed with a nuclear warhead. He's killed. The man that shoots him takes his own life. And Bond is sent in the next day to investigate what is going on at Drax's launch pad. He meets all of the scientists who all have these luxurious mustaches and shaved heads that totally gross Bond out, and he's playing fashion police even as he's snooping around. And, of course, he meets Gayla Brand, the secretary that the two men allegedly were fighting over, and finds her quite attractive as well. She is a double agent. She works for Scotland Yard. They're really both in it together to try and figure out what's going on here with Drax's lab. At a certain point, they go running off to the beach to have a little, I don't know, R&R, and Drax arranges for a landslide to almost crush them. I'll be honest with you, after we get done playing Bridge, the novel quickly dips into sort of silly potboiler territory. It should be so obvious to everyone that Drax is corrupt and what's going on here. It's one of those things where the reader is far ahead of the characters who are doing the investigating. That can be a little annoying, but 
I do like the way that Fleming is writing this. I do think that there's pulpy fun here. We're learning a lot more about Bond this time. I think in the last two novels, I haven't really got a good sense of him beyond his persnickety likes and dislikes. Here, I'm learning more about his salary, what he imagines his retirement to be, a little bit more about what he admires in women. I I do feel like he is becoming a more fleshed-out character, and I'm liking him quite a bit more. You know, this week over at NowPlayingPodcast.com, we're covering the original Casino Royale, the one that was not an official movie, but was made with Peter Sellers and David Niven. I gotta say, reading these novels, I've never been able to see Connery in the Bond that's on the page. I've never seen any of the other film stars, but when I watch this Casino Royale, I'm actually getting a lot of David Niven here. And it's funny, because this was Fleming's choice to play the character. I can see it now. This sort of thin, very particular, very proper man. It, it's it's not the hirsute he-man that Connery was. It's not the snarky Moore. It, it really is more of a kind of middle-aged fuddy-duddy who just somehow magically seems to pull the adventure together just by happenstance and just his goodwill. I kind of like him when I see him in that way, and it does help me to sort of visualize the character now that I have an actor in my head to cast. But I'm not going to lie, the rest of the chases and all that are sort of perfunctory, that Bond and Gala end up tied up almost like a damsel in distress to the railroad tracks underneath the rocket before it's taking off and the plan is that they'll burn up and all these people will be watching the lift off and have no idea that it's been recalibrated to hit London until Drax is on a submarine far away and of course Bond and the girl are able to recalibrate it so that it actually hits the submarine. Well, that's cool for killing the villain, Bond, but you do know that you just released nuclear fallout. That, okay, it didn't hit London, it didn't vaporize the populace, but it is going to have negative health ramifications for anyone living off of the coast for a long time. So I'm giving him mm, C- there for victory in this case. It's one thing to stop Drax. It's one thing to save the girl. It's another not to detonate the Moonraker and have a mushroom cloud. Fleming kind of ends this like Casino Royale too on a kind of bittersweet note. It's not as tragic as Vesper Lynn killing herself and Bond left at the altar, but Bond does really start to have feelings for Gala Brand. Maybe he does this with all the women. Maybe this will be like this all the time, but he's, again, thinking about his life and his future and retirement and thinking this could be a woman that he could spend that time with. Well, she's engaged to somebody else Bond. So, yet again, another example of how different the book Bond is from the womanizing, always ending up in bed with the lady at the end movie Bond. You know, overall, I think Moonraker is really in the middle. Between the three books I've read, it neither approaches the greatness of Casino Royale nor hits the depths of Live and Let Die. I think it's just fine. I think that if you're only wanting to read the very best Bonds, maybe this one is one you could skip. But if you want to read anyone that has some admirable attributes, I do think the bridge game is really fun. I would frankly be happy if every future novel involves Bond playing games of chance, because I think that's where he really excels. I think that's where his sort of more unlikable aspects get buffed out, and I really can go along with the character as he's written. So if you want to read about an exciting bridge game, (laughs) I would definitely recommend Moonraker. If you're looking for more of that spies gadgetry stuff, 
the rocket launch, all of that stuff, uh, take it or leave it. Maybe they'll work out the formula for next week's novel, Diamonds Are Forever. We're going to keep going on. We've got several more months of Ian Fleming works, and Brock is eventually going to get in here with covering some of the material, but I will be covering next week here at Books and Nachos, Diamonds Are Forever. And I dare say we're going to be releasing that close to the release of the NowPlayingPodcast.com movie, Diamonds Are Forever. So I might be able to at least have seen it and be able to comment a little bit more directly about movie versus book when we cover Diamonds Are Forever next week. Talk to you then. Thank you for listening to Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes, and you can catch back episodes at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved.